You're listening to the Kilcullen Diary Podcasts. Stories in sound from a village grown bigger. Hello, I'm Brian Byrne, and in this episode of my In Those Days series, I'm recalling the old-fashioned grocery and bar of which every small village and town used to have several. Part of the Eurospar site on Main Street was once a shop owned by two women whom I knew as my aunts Peg and Nora. They were actually my grandfather's sisters, and the shop was the business which my great-grandfather came to in Kilcullen to help out and which established him here. Not just as a shopkeeper, but as the carpenter which was his trade and as a builder, and a coffin maker too, which led to the family's long involvement in funeral undertaking. I have still vivid childhood memories of that shop and the residence attached to it. The ground floor comprised a grocery shop, a bar, a back store and a parlour and kitchen where Peg and Nora lived. There were two bedrooms upstairs. Access to the whole complex was by one open entranceway with a door on the left into the parlour and one straight on into the grocery. The shop had a scrubbed wooden floor, a varnished hardwood counter and wooden shelves behind where stock was stacked. In these days of supermarkets and convenience stores, it probably seems strange that people would queue up to be served by somebody behind a counter rather than helping themselves and then queuing to pay. But that's how it was then. Beyond the shop was the bar, separated by a partition and a door with frosted glass and a brass handle. Its own counter was an extension of the shops, with access to both through a lift-up section just beside the partition. Peg and Nora both worked behind the counter, but the real important person was their employee, Pat Quinn. He was barman, storeman, shop assistant, polisher of the brass pole which supported the ceiling, operator and cleaner of the slicer used to cut sides of bacon into rashers and the cooked hams into thin slices. The slicer was an awesome thing, all stainless steel and red enamel. An amazing piece of engineering using the weight of a flywheel to spin the cutting disc. A frightening sight too, especially when watching Pat Quinn's fingers getting dangerously close to it as he pushed the side of bacon in and out. The slices slipped out the other side onto a shiny shelf. They'd then be placed on greaseproof paper on a scales to be weighed for price. Apart from the speed at which Pat Quinn could do this, the other amazing thing was how accurate the weight asked for would be produced. Partly experience, but there was also the brass adjuster with numbers which dictated the thickness of the rasher. Later I realised that Pat knew how many rashers of any preferred thickness made up the requested weight. As kids we liked to swing around the brass pole, much to the chagrin of Pat, who had earlier polished it to an exquisite shine. If he was in bad humour, he'd make us polish off our handprints. Most times, though, we got away with it. There were interesting chores, like filling the bags of tea, sugar, sultanas and raisins, and candied peel at Christmas. These came to the shop in bulk and had to be bagged using wooden-handled metal scoops. The bags were paper in a variety of muted colours, blue, brown, grey and dark green. The colour denoted the contents. 
doing some of this work always brought a treat of chocolate or sweets at the end of the afternoon. The tea came in big plywood boxes, tea chests, sealed with foil that was sharp-edged but much prized for playing with afterwards. The lids were dangerous, with dozens of small, sharp nails sticking out of them when the chest was opened. They had to be carefully put out of harm's way while we children were around. The sugar came in a sack, and the sultanas, raisins and candied peel were, to the best of my memory, in boxes smaller than the tea chests. There was a system for bagging. The appropriate colour bag opened out so it sat comfortably in the hand. Scoop in the tea or whatever was being packaged that day, and then the open bag placed on a simple balanced scale with a brass weight on the other side to check it. Any extra needed was poured in until the scale tipped. We got really expert at not needing to add anything. There was no sellotape or glue to seal things, just a neat fold and a characteristic of the bag's material was that it stayed closed if properly done. We particularly enjoyed bagging the sultanas and raisins, because we could pop the odd handful into our mouths. As an aside, this made our mother's ritual feeding us spoonfuls of syrup of figs unnecessary that night. The bags were stacked on the shelves at the back of the shop, all very neat and colour-coded. The bags also allowed the various aromas to leak around the shop, mixing to give that very special smell which old shops still have in the memories of those of us lucky enough to have been there. Other smells came from the fresh vegetables. I remember with affection the baskets of peas in pods. Even today, pod peas are extraordinarily inviting a smell of a particular sweetness. When my mother would bring a chip of them home, there was no problem getting us to help shell them. The real problem was making sure that we didn't eat all the raw peas as we did so. And the only way she could make sure that enough were left for cooking was to allow us chew the empty pods afterwards. Though you can't actually eat them because they're too stringy, they still have a sweetness that you really can't know about if you've been raised on frozen peas. Then there was the fresh bread that came each morning and evening from O'Connell's Bakery down the town. Especially engaging was the batch loaf, the most popular in my family's house. Sent to get the bread, wrapped loosely in tissue bread paper, by the time I got home I had eaten inroads into the white sides of the loaf still warm from the oven. The aroma of stale Guinness was also part of the whole shop environment because that was the only draught drink in the bar at the back. I've written before about my memories of this, especially the copper basin under the beer pump, where the overspills went, and the copper jug used to scoop this up and top off the pints for the customers. Other memories from the shop are the rack of metal biscuit tins, later with glass lids so you could see inside, but in those earlier times we depended on the labels. It took some special deftness to remove the sharp-edged lids without finger damage. My memories of the residential side include the kitchen, lofted high to a roof light that gave it an unusual brightness all through the day. There was a big range cooker, though I don't remember the make, and a kitchen table of solid wood with an oilcloth covering. There were tiled walls too, and always a welcome for the Byrne family children who needed somewhere to delay on the way home to chores, or worse, homework. I can still see, too, the parlour, comfortable in a fussy kind of a way. The mirror over the mantelpiece was a circular thing that almost belonged in a funfair hall of mirrors. 
It gave a wide-angle view of the room and didn't reflect anybody in a natural way. In truth, I really only have vague recollections of Peg and Nora, though Nora also sticks in my mind because she was the first person whom I recall seeing dead, laid out in her small bedroom upstairs. I don't remember it being a shock or even sad, but I suspect that as children we deal with such basics of life much better than we do later as adults. My aunts died. I grew up, and eventually my Uncle Tom turned the shop and bar into a more modern grocery. When that shop went on fire one summer evening, I was then a young man, and with several other people I ran into the burning building to save what I could, and quite a lot of stock ended up stacked on the footpath outside. It has to be said that it didn't remain stacked there long. Uncle Tom's insurance company paid for the windfalls on many tables that week. Lord knows, he'd paid enough premiums over the years to fund it. My own abiding memory of that night is the damage done to my jumper and to my hair by what I later discovered was melting lead from the gutter between the shop and the former living quarters, and of providing suitable refreshment for the members of the fire brigade who'd managed to save the structure of the building that night. Much of the liquor stock survived, and in the then roofless kitchen, where I had so many times as a youngster delayed my going home after school, we raised several glasses apiece to their efforts. I'm Brian Byrne. This is Cacollan Diary. Thanks for listening.